the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, thank you kindly, sir, and hello. Welcome. Good to have you uh, in on the program here today for a Tuesday, 25th day of July. What does that make us here Miles, that puts us uh, five months away from Christmas. Yeah, it sure does. I had to go and say that, didn't I? Just <laughs> just made everybody panic, thinking, oh, my goodness, he's counting down. Well, in the warm weather, you're thinking about the holiday season and going skiing when we've had high temperatures. At least nothing as bad as Phoenix. What is Phoenix now? 23 days in a row of 110 degrees or warmer you know, they talk about being able to boil an egg on the sidewalk. I, no, thank you. My goodness. Amazing. Well, here we are in the Bay Area where it's not quite that hot, and we're going to try not to make your own temperature go up that hot and make you boiling mad today, though we do have some important things to discuss on the program. And to do that, assisting us as um, he is so um, uniquely and ably um, equipped to do so is constitutional lawyer, educator, best-selling author, Mr. Joe Murray. And Joe, good afternoon to you, my friend. Welcome. Ho, ho, ho. Merry no, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you doing, I, it's, it's just amazing. The, 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 it's like a Rorschacher ink test listening to my program every once in a while. You just never know what's, <laughs> what's going to pop yeah. up. And why I'm thinking about Christmas in, uh, in July is beyond me. Let's write a tune, shall we? But in any event, we do have a lot to start with. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of preface this by saying in some quarters that might be considered to be throwing you a curveball, although I've known you down through these years, that you are never stumped or surprised. And and since the law is um, kind of your, your primary heartbeat, uh, along with education, I'm going to start with your opinion on what is going on in Israel. We're watching these unbelievable protests uh, there in Jerusalem, Tel Aviv as well, this following the word that the parliament has passed a weakening of Israel's Supreme Court. Uh, lawmakers there unanimously approving uh, approving a portion of a controversial judicial overhaul that's been pushed by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And essentially, it says now that the ability of the court to come in and effectively override decisions that it rules to be unconstitutional um, and or the ability of the Supreme Court to, quote, declare government decisions unreasonable, close quote, which I got a kick when I read that yes. reporting. I thought either that that reporter is using the wrong word or um, they're clearly not working in Washington, D.C., because most of the votes in Washington, D.C. are certainly decisions that are unreasonable. But that said, 
Does it trouble you at all to hear this? I mean, it seems to be, at least on face value, a little bit troubling in terms of this notion that checks and balances in a democracy is so critically important. And when that breaks down or fails, um, there, there, in my mind, is an extreme risk to the health of that democracy. But in your opinion, is it the same here? Um, You know... The checks and balances is a great system. It does do a good job of keeping everything in order, but there are often times when they irritate each other. And in this country, we have seen it. We saw it with, uh, you know, early on with Thomas Jefferson when the Marbury Court uh, made up with that decision to say, look, we have the power of judicial review, that the Supreme Court has the authority to override the acts of Congress. And we saw it again with Andrew Jackson and the National Bank and then with Abe Lincoln. Uh, we, we've seen it historically. And then FDR threatened to, to pack the court if they didn't stop striking down his New Deal. And then, of course, now if we bring it to modern times, uh, we have the situation where now that the court is on a more conservative bent, they're already talking about doing either term limits or packing the court. And when I mean packing the court, I mean adding more judges so they could be appointed by Biden and swing the, the, the vote back to a more progressive side. This is normal in a democracy. I don't think there's anything to be worried about because there comes a time when the court is out of step with the people. And this is not going to be a quick fix because we don't know who's right yet. History will tell us who's right when we see what happens in the next five, ten years, just like we did with Jefferson and Jackson and Lincoln and even with FDR, because it seemed to work for FDR. He threatened to pack the court, and all of a sudden those those decisions uh, striking down New Deal provisions seemed to kind of dry up. So it's going to be interesting. So I would not sound an alarm yet. Where it becomes more problematic is if you see direct interference with decisions that are made, uh, if you see the the complete uh, ignoring of judicial decisions, because that's something that, especially in this country, the Supreme Court, the way it was created constitutionally, is, is, is basically toothless. It will render a decision, but it's up to the executive branch to enforce them. And, you know, the, the saying has been gone, said many times, you know, so-and-so has made his decision, now let him enforce it, is what I think Andrew Jackson said. So if the courts don't see this as a kind of canary in the coal mine and continue on the path, you could go down that path to where a court may make a decision, the executive branch doesn't enforce it, and now what happens is you have a complete collapse of government. So I guess this is a very long-winded, lawyerly way of saying that this is kind of a canary in a coal mine in Israel. It's kind of the, the elected branches of government basically saying, blow your roll, courts, we don't want you going any further. And I guess we'll find out whether that works in the next couple of months, if not years. You know, what I find troubling about this, and it certainly has been true in our own country, you you aptly speak to the notion of court packing, which um, FDR did push pretty heavily when he began to get the message that the uh, Supreme Court was not liking a lot of what was coming through uh, both his office in Congress in relationship to things like the National Recovery Act and in other aspects related to the alphabet soup of organizations that he was creating right and left to try and address the uh, the economic morass that the country was in in the face of the Great Depression. Um, and yet, you know, I, I've heard it opined that amongst the three branches, they are there to 
to keep each other honest, a system of checks and balances, that sometimes there are going to be decisions that one side is more happier with than the other, that on average, if they are decisions that kind of nobody likes, yet everybody's not altogether upset with, it's probably okay, which means you give a little, you get a little, I give a little, I get a little, and at the end of the day, it all works out. I think what I find problematic is when declarations are made that people think, well, this particular branch of government is going too far left or too far right, and therefore we're going to clip its wings to prevent that from happening. Well, the problem with that approach, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Counselor, but I think the problem with that approach is it sets up a scenario that says, okay, under this set of circumstances, under this set of players involved, that might not necessarily be a bad thing. But as we know, governments shift. Congress shifts every two years. So every third year or you know, every every third cycle, we see a shift in uh, the entirety of the United States uh, Senate. And of course, every four years, a uh, potential change in whoever the occupant is of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. So you might look at the current president and say Biden's doing too much, he's out of control, we need to clip his wings, we're going to do this, that, and the other thing, great. Then the next president comes in, who's of an entirely different political persuasion, and now their hands are tied, or just vice versa. And I guess a lot of it just depends in who's in charge at the moment, and be mindful that if you make a drastic change today to benefit your people, your priorities, your party, that's going to be on the other foot someday, and you might not like it then. Yeah, you're right. And and I think historically, if we look at what has drawn the the ire of, of many presidents and Congress uh, folks when dealing with the court, they have been huge issues. You know, with Jefferson, it was who had the right, you know, uh, you know, who had the right to determine what is constitutional. The Supreme Court always had the right to strike down state laws uh, because of the supremacy clause. Of course, you have to have in the federal government, the federal government has the final say. If it has the, if it has the power to do it, you got to listen to it. But when you got to Jackson, the issue was the the federal bank. Now, that was a congressional matter. And then you look at Lincoln, it dealt with the Civil War. And then you look at Roosevelt, it dealt with the New Deal. You tend to have these these skirmishes over big, big, culturally shifting issues. Uh, They're not going to usually be the smaller cases, because the court does hear a number of cases. We don't get to hear them all because they're not all pressing. But what I think is going to be interesting, and we talked about it before, is that when you're dealing with our system of government, we have two competing forces. You have the will of the people and the rule of law. And sometimes the will of the people does not match the rule of law and vice versa. So the question becomes, how do we change it? If we depend upon the court to change it, that could be a long and and, and very arduous process. Because if you think about it, you go to Dred Scott, uh, which, of course, held that, that slaves were property. And it took all the way up to Brown versus Board of Education, pretty much a hundred years, a complete century, for the court to basically right that wrong. When you deal with Congress, of course, laws can be passed and changed theoretically within the moment. But then again, those folks are, are tied to the passions of the people. So it's a very delicate balance that we see balancing the will of the people versus the rule of law. And I think when the frustrations emerge is when you start to see these these fractures like we're seeing in Israel. And honestly, like we're seeing here with the more liberal leaning folks getting quite upset about what's happening, of course, 
with Roe v. Wade going, affirmative action going. So we're probably going to hear more of that talk because what happens is once the court makes these decisions, they're not going to change very easily. It will take decades, if not a half a century, for the court to correct, if it got it wrong, anything that it got wrong. Because I'll end it with this, because in the in the law, there's a, something called star decisis, which means let the decision stand. The courts are not in the business of saying they're wrong. That's not what they were meant to do, which is why it takes so long for these courts to find out they made a mistake. So in, in, in our federal system, in our, in our system of checks and balances, sometimes we have to kind of lose a little cool before we can let let the system fix itself. But, but let me ask you this, and I, I don't want to prolong this too yeah. much because I, I've, I've got my, my engineer here has got his stopwatch <laughs> in one hand and a very large hammer in the other. But I, I'm curious, if at the end of the day, in the most simplistic of terms, Congress writes the laws, passes the laws, the United States mm-hmm. Supreme Court looks at the laws passed by Congress and then decides either up or down based on the Constitution and whether or not the framework of the Constitution is sort of the guideline um, is something that will permit this law or will run contrary into this law. Okay, good. So we have umpteen examples of modifications being made to the Constitution, more commonly referred to as amendments, that will allow us to say... The Supreme Court has decided X, Y, and Z. We, the people, do not agree with it. So we're going to go to Congress. We're going to have Congress change the law. We're going to ask for the states to ratify it. And with, um, what is a supermajority, 66%? What's the yeah, number? Right. Yeah. With the supermajority yeah. of states ratifying it, that becomes the new law of the land. While it's not an overnight process, it is a process that is approachable, that we've we've addressed. I, I don't believe so in, in this current century, but certainly in the last century on multiple occasions. So if that vehicle is open to us, um, it, it would seem to me, even if the Supreme Court comes down on the side of something that seems to run contrarian to the will of the people, but is nevertheless in harmony with the Constitution, hey, if you don't like the Constitution, add an amendment. Yeah. Well, and that's a great point. I think the only time I ever saw the amendment process work in lightning speed was prohibition. Uh, so other than that, <laughs> it has not worked very well. took decades to put it on, but not so long to get rid of it. <laughs> exactly. That was, we got that one wrong. So, but I, and, I, and I go back to the issue of slavery being the real, real issue because you go back and forth on this. Because if we agree that the courts are the final arbiter of the Constitution, we have to live with those decisions because the way our system is made up, it is hard to change a Supreme Court decision. And that is why folks like Jefferson back in the day said, no, Congress was the final arbiter of the Constitution, not the Supreme Court, because Congress has the ability to hold hearings. Congress has the ability to fix itself because Congress is the one that can move quickly. But then it goes back to your argument. When the Supreme Court gets it right and that rule of law is protected against the the will of the people, that's a good thing. But we also have to live in in a world when the Supreme Court gets it wrong. So these these discussions have been really happening since the birth of our country. And anytime you have a free society that, that has a judiciary, which we need, we're going to have these discussions. I think our country has figured out a pretty good balance on it. But like you said, you're still going to have some angry people. So stuff like this will happen. But the fact that we could overturn Roe v. Wade, the fact that we could uh, end affirmative action, and we didn't have mass chaos, 
shows you that the system is working. It might not be perfect, but it's one of the best ones out there. And if at the end of the day you don't like the decision, then lobby Congress, get them to vote differently, um, get uh, the supermajority of the states to ratify it, and change the Constitution. Joe Murray with us today. He is an educator, attorney, best-selling author, former speechwriter for Patrick Buchanan, so lots of experience in the uh, political realm. And we are talking about some of the big stories of the week and their impact on your life. When we come back, a story that many perhaps might consider to be a big one, but it has some pretty significant potential impact. And it has to do with a new proposal for new, new math in California. New math. I'm still trying to figure the old math out. Well, anyway, let me get my abacus out. Back with more. Our conversation with best-selling author Joe Murray. His book called Take Back Education. You can find it at Amazon.com. A timeout back with more right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I was just sharing with my engineer here. um, (laughs) This is tragic. A burn unit in Maricopa County down in in, uh, Arizona. 45 beds. All 45 beds are currently filled. Half of the patients that are there are patients who fell. Not off of a roof, the top of a building, fell to the ground and received second degree burns because the pavement was some, so hot in some areas reaching 119 degrees. And I reminded uh, Miles that if you want to do a, a medium rare roast, that's 140 degrees. Joe, it's unbelievable. I mean, you know, they talk about frying an egg on the sidewalk. This is indeed it. All right, let's talk about another hot topic, shall we? Boom, there's a transition for you. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to figure out the old math. In fact, I'm one of those that if you tell me to count to 11, I have to pause to take a, a shoe off. Um, no surprise here in California that we are looking at a new math framework. Well, assuming that there's not some new way to add, subtract, multiply, divide, uh, things of this sort, I, I'm, I'm really curious as to what a new framework is. And I suppose for old folks like me, the question then goes to, and what was wrong with the old framework? What's going on here with math education in a state like California? Well, what's going on is that instead of focusing on math, which is an objective study, which for centuries uh, in every major world tradition had had objective answers, meaning there was a right and wrong answer, and there was a way to achieve that answer, um, that was the focus. But now in California and a number of growing states, we're saying that math is systemically racist and that it has been created to, even though it has was basically created in the Persian areas and the Hindu areas of of ancient civilizations, this system is now systematically racist, and it favors a certain group of people over another. And and I kid you not, uh, one of the elements of the new way of doing math in California is that the idea that requiring a right answer is racist and therefore cannot be enforced upon students. So this is not a question of whether or not your your student is getting the answer right and wrong. You present a math test. The first question is 2 plus 2 equals blank space. Your child writes in 4. Great, you're correct. The child gets it. Somebody else's child writes in 3. 
And the answer is not that's wrong. The answer is more about how you feel about the process than how what the actual outcome is. If that be the case, I want to go down to the bank and say, hey, you guys got it wrong. I don't have a thousand dollars in the account. I feel like I have a hundred thousand dollars. Please move your decimal point. (laughs) <laughs> Just tell them you identify as a billionaire. Yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> and that, that should work. Uh, but, but that's the thing. So what you're doing now and what you're sort of instructing your teachers to do is say, okay, not only do we see if little Johnny or little Susie gets the answer right, if they get it wrong, which we really can't say anymore because, of course, that's going to be a trigger word, uh, you have to say, okay, what is their backgrounds? What is their ethnicity? And now you're, you're having a deep invasion into that child's privacy, but you're also sending a message that you think that they can't do it, that you think that they are intrinsically a victim, that they are intrinsically unable to accomplish a task that is objectively accomplishable. Now, look, I will be the first to tell you, I had tutors, I had private tutors, I had school tutors. Math was my downfall. If I ever get put in a math class, it's going to be all over for for the shout, and it's not going to happen. Uh, but I knew I was bad in math, and I knew I tried to, and I knew it wasn't for me. But under this system, I would have been pumped full of lies that I am doing well in math and that I still can become an astronaut. And Lord knows nobody wants me as their co-pilot in space because I would have a whole lot of trouble trying to figure out how much fuel and oxygen and all that stuff is. So what we're doing is we're actually lying to children in order to fix a self-esteem issue that they didn't have until we told them they had it. These kids didn't know that they might be troubling or not doing well in math because of their race until we tell them that. And that is what's absolutely horrific with this. We We have turned math into a social experiment that is going to create students who then become citizens who do not know their own limitations. And, and we're doing this in the name of equity, which is really, and I'm not against equity, don't get me wrong. Equity in the old days was if you see a situation where there might be an imbalance, you go in and you fix that situation and you make it balanced. Now equity is you see a situation that may be imbalanced, you just throw the whole system out and you create this new one. And by doing that, we are creating citizens that are not going to be prepared for the new uh, for the new world that they're going to inherit, and thus we're going to have all these problems that are going to snowball from that. Well, I think what's problematic about what you're describing here, Joe, is that we've suddenly made the shift from what had been heretofore the necessity to make sure that everybody had equal opportunities to now somehow credit creating a scenario where everybody has equal outcomes. And yes. you know what? I'm sorry. I, I, you're you're a big fan, I know, of of um, uh, Tom Jones. I am a big <laughs> fan of Frank Sinatra and of Tony Bennett. And Friday was a rough day. And as much as I admire Tony Bennett and may even go around the house vocalizing many of his tunes, there is no professor, there is no there is no teacher, there is no methodology that will ever make me sound like Tony Bennett. And I. I accept that, I embrace that, and therefore I don't sing for a living, and boy, aren't the listeners glad of it. My point is, you know, we, we, we've created then what you're suggesting here is a scenario where we're so hypersensitive about a child's feelings today, instead of saying, hey, some people are talented in different ways, we're not all going to be doctors, we're not all going to be lawyers, we're all going to be different things. So what we do instead is we spare the child's feelings today, and Joe, what you're describing 
describing is just going to set them up for failure tomorrow. Because believe me, if they ever open up their own store and they're counting money at their cash register and they don't know how to come up with the right change when somebody hands them a 20 and they hand five $10 bills back, they may feel good about it, but they won't when it comes to paying their own bills because they're going to find out they're giving it away. No, that's true. And and this is not, I, need, I know a lot of people, especially in my generation, are sitting there thinking, how did we get here? But it makes perfect sense because look at who's now making the policy, Craig. We had, starting in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, a whole educational school that said that if you just showed up, you got the star. It was the participation trophy phase. These kids were never told that they were bad at something because they were never allowed to fail or lose. And these are now the people creating policy. They never knew what it was like to lose. And we, what we've done is we've robbed entire generations of the, 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 the benefit of losing. I think many of us who have been successful, many of us that have been in the world, will tell you what's more important, our successes or our failures. And mostly everybody says our failures, because when you fail is when you get to find out who you are, what you're made of, what you should be doing, right? And we're not letting these kids fail. And, you know, this is the sad thing. I truly believe that the kids in this country are the best kids. They, they, they live in a country that is going to give them the opportunity to succeed. They live in a country where you have unparalleled freedom and they have the ability to do well. It is not that these kids cannot do the job. It's that the system is now rigged against them because we have people that are, that are running the system that want to make themselves feel good rather than do what's good for the kids. It's kind of like the parent who doesn't want to discipline the child because we don't want the child not to like you. So that's what we're doing here. That's what educators are doing. They don't want the child to be upset, so therefore they create an alternate universe, and at the end of the day, we're doing more harm to these kids than we can possibly imagine. We're absolutely setting them up for complete failure because when the day comes that mommy and daddy or the local school is not there to coddle them and make them feel better about wrong choices or a lack of talent or school. And I know people say, oh, that's terrible. How could you suggest that little Johnny doesn't have the talent? Well, as I suggested to you a moment ago, and little Craig doesn't have the singing talent, and it's never going to change. And you know what? I don't feel one iota sorry about that. Do I wish I could sing? Yeah, I wish I could play the piano, too. But there's a lot of other things that I can do and do very well. And so instead of teaching children to learn about what their skill set is and where they can excel and succeed and where perhaps they're not uniquely um, blessed with skills. You know, I mean, a a guy that's four foot five, probably not going to do well in the NBA. Right. Um, And yet may may be fantastic in some other sport or maybe as a, a, you know, a, a jockey riding a horse, whatever the case may be. But teaching our children how to ascertain where their skill sets lie and to be able to find jobs in which they can find complete satisfaction and be able to say some things I do well, other things I don't do so well, but to be all worried about the child's feelings that in the at the end of the day when something has a, a, an indisputable answer, two plus two is four, period, end of discussion. If you don't like that outcome, sorry about that. Then now we're more worried about not whether or not the child 
retains the information or develops the skill to be able to do the math, but instead to make sure that their feelings don't get hurt, says to me that we're sparing their feelings today, but setting them up for extreme failure tomorrow. And I think that's just criminal. I really do. No, it is. It, it really is a complete dereliction of duty uh, in the fact that we as educators, our primary purpose is to create productive citizens, people that are going to be able to find their best selves and go out and benefit society. And you're right. I mean, you can't put Lizzo on secretariat and expect that horse to win the triple crown. It's not going to work that way. What you need to do is allow children to find their strengths and their weaknesses, because that's the one thing we don't want to talk about anymore is the weaknesses. We want to talk about the strengths. But it's in finding your weaknesses that you truly get to know your strengths and where you need to be. And that is the problem with where education is right now. Equity is no longer about trying to help students. It used to be at one point, but when you hear equity today, what equity means is that you're transferring power to those in charge and they get to pick who wins and loses. They get to pick and write the, the, the outcomes. And that is why it's so scary because we are living in a world where we don't have objectivity anymore. There's no absolutes. So math used to be absolute. But now there's a sense of relativism that has crept into the to the system. And if math is relative, any engineer is going to tell you, if and any 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 physicist is going to tell you, if math becomes relative, then the whole universe creates chaos. And you have to start asking yourself, maybe that's part of the end game. Maybe there is a desire to create complete chaos because when chaos brings everything down, thus you can reimagine the society. So we as Christians and we as, as Americans have to demand that we stay true to what objective absolute truth is. And in this case, we're talking about it in terms of math. Well, there is let, a right answer and there is a wrong answer. Let, let, me, let me shift the dialogue as we go to break to, to just put this in perspective. Um, so imagine the child grows up, always wanted to be a doctor. Used to watch reruns of House and thought, that's that's me. That's what I want to be. And so the child begins a course of, of biology and, and other medical study, studies. And it gets maybe even into a high-level uh, uh, you know university, a teaching university. Like you're down at Stanford Hospital and you're learning. And all of the professors along the way saying, I'm sorry, but your son keeps failing the tests and, and uh, you know, can't identify the body parts, can't make you know, all of it. Imagine what would happen if that school said, you know, poor Johnny's worked really hard. And when we acknowledge the fact that he really is going to make a lousy surgeon. But, you know, to to give him a failing grade, to deny him his wish would be cruel. And so we're going to go ahead and uh, give him his medical degree and we're going to allow him to uh, to uh, bypass the MCATs and just go ahead and, and get his license and begin practicing medicine and performing surgery. Surgery. Would you want somebody who failed their medical school training at the most basic level to go in and perform brain surgery on you or your son or your daughter? I think not. And while that might seem like an extreme example, it is at face value, on theory, absolutely on point. 
We need to be equipping our children to succeed at whatever their gift and calling happens to be. And if they don't have a gift, we have to be caring and loving and adult enough to say, sorry, Craig, you are never going to be the next Luciano Pavarotti. So hang up the microphone and go figure out where you do have talents, gifts, and abilities, because the failure to do so as we get hypersensitive about their feelings today just means we are setting them up for disaster tomorrow. Joe Murray with us today. He is a best-selling author, an attorney, an educator. His best-selling book, Take Back Education, and we've got a lot more to talk about, so don't go away. We'll take this brief time out, come back to more of our conversation with Joe Murray as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back with best-selling author, constitutional lawyer, and educator Joe Murray talking about some of the big stories of the week and their impact on your life. Joe, I want to pivot to the elections in a moment. But first, I can't imagine somebody that has tons of high-level business experience, meaning you've been at the forefront of multiple successful businesses, and one day you wake up and say, I'm looking at a big, well-known known successful brand that is universally recognized like Ford. I'm going to, as multi-billionaire Craig Roberts, go and buy Ford. And after firing half of the development team and the um, the manufacturing staff that works at the factory and so forth and kind of paring it down to bare bones, wake up one day and say, you know, I think I know what the problem is, that we're not making enough sales. It's in the name. So we're going to scuttle the name Ford. And starting tomorrow, we're going to chisel it off the building and all of our advertising. And instead, we're going to use something new, fresh, exciting, innovative that will be an attention getter, capture everyone's imaginations. What better way to do that than put a big... X mark, like he's just put an X through $44 billion that he spent in buying Twitter. I mean, is this is this a publicity stunt or is Elon Musk that disconnected from any any sense of reality or is this just what billionaires get to do? I mean, I explain to me the logic behind this, because I see zero. Yeah, you know, I don't know if I know it either. That either means that that's why we're not billionaires. <laughs> or I'll grant you that. That could be true. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, but I mean, I you're right. I mean, Twitter is wide known. It's a household name. Um, you know, in terms of brand recognition, anything that they would teach you in marketing school, um, changing the name would not have been, been the problem. And even the service itself, why it might have been politically, uh, you know, stuck in the mud a little bit. It was still operating as as it should. Uh, so I don't know what's going on with Twitter. I don't know if he bought this as as a hobby, um, as a tax write off, or or what. But I would not have advised uh, to. to rename it with X. I mean, unless, like you said, it's publicity done, X marks the font. I just know it's not going as well as he thought. I think people have moved over and more conservative-minded people have moved over to Truth Social, and now you have Facebook with their, I forget what the name of Facebook's uh, thingamajobber is, but they Threads. have turned into the game. Threads. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right, and then, so I, you look at it this way, 
Twitter no longer seems to be the hot spot, and it really has a MySpace feel to it right now. Oh, so, boy. I, I, you know, that's, 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 what, that's the feel I get, because honestly, I can't remember the last time I was on Twitter. Uh, I mean, just a year and a half ago, uh, you know, that's where I did most of my social media was on Twitter, and, and I, you know, I have not been on there. Now, I left a little bit before Elon took over, but nothing he did brought me back, and, and I, the, so I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see. So either he has a trick up his sleeve that we mere mortals do not know, or this is just the final nail in the coffin. Yeah, you know, I, I am being in the, the radio business for 40-something years. I, I've always learned that branding is critically important. You know, we, we tell people when you're on the radio, make sure you clearly enunciate the call letters and the frequency because branding means everything. And yet... Yet here he is essentially, with one fell swoop, scuttling, uh, got to be nearly a decade and a half of branding, and uh, <laughs> talk about something that is not only um, horrifically non-innovative, but then I understand a little birdie told me, and it probably wasn't the Twitter bird, though it might have been, yeah. <laughs> that apparently there is a number of trademarks that have already been registered with the United States Trade and uh, Trademark and Patent oh, yeah. Office for X this and X that related to social media held by none other than his uh, occasional nemesis and uh, desired cage fight partner, Mr. Zuckerberg. So yeah. you got to wonder, is this is a great big stunt or is there some stroke of genius here that simply we mer mortal, mere mortals are not recognizing? I, I don't know, but I, I find it pretty outlandish. And I don't know if you saw the news, but they, they actually came in. They, they were busy stripping the word Twitter off the side of the building in downtown San Francisco. And the city oh, came in and stopped them and said, we're sorry, you need a permit to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't that? That says it all right there. It does indeed. All right, let's let's pivot to another topic, and it's one that we're going to be, oh, my, 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 so sick and tired of by the time November yeah. of next year gets here. So, uh, yeah, why not talk about it since everybody else will be? Uh, 2024, uh, why am I getting deja vu all over again when I look at the growing number of people that are declaring their candidacy for the presidency and uh, some names that we saw on that same list? list just a scant few years ago are showing back up again. Hello, Chris Christie. Um, yeah. I, it just I it I find it fascinating that not only people that have failed in the past are apparently back for another round um, of abuse, um, but a few names on that list that most people go, who? Uh, which I guess is just, you know, you get your, your 15 minutes of fame, I suppose, or get to include on your, your resume, your CV, you know, former presidential candidate, uh, but g give me your sense in terms of where things are. I, I think there there is a, a, a pretty solid feeling that um, unless, how should we put this politely, unless political and or legal fate catch up, there's a strong likelihood that Donald Trump is going to be the Republican candidate for the presidency. Uh, but this list, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Mike uh, Pence, Tim Scott, Chris Christie, whom I mentioned a moment ago, um, many names that people just kind of yawn. The only one that, oddly enough, at least in the polls, seems to be 
capturing a bit of attention, and that is the one guy whose name we can't pronounce, uh, Vivek Ramaswari. So your thoughts about this lineup and why are some like Chris Christie jumping back in again when they didn't move the needle six years ago, eight, seven years ago? Let's kind of break this down. You know, I was watching the DeSantis campaign explain that, look, you know, it's August and, you know, Donald Trump was at 4% this time in 2016 and anything can happen. And that would have that validity, but they forget to mention that in 2016, Jeb Bush was polling who was everybody thought was the clear front runner, that nobody was going to touch Jeb Bush. He was polling at 12%. Okay. So there, there was not a clear front runner. When you were polling consistently 30, 40 points ahead of your closest competitor, it is as if you are an incumbent in your own party, an incumbent president, kind of like what's happening with Biden. So uniquely in this country, I don't think it's ever happened before, it's as if we have two incumbent presidents that are seeking the same job, which we do. But when I mean incumbent, I mean two presidents coming off of their term. Even though we know Trump is not, he's polling like he is. And there's not much more you can throw at the man. I do believe that if he even was convicted tomorrow, it would probably lead to an increase in his Republican poll numbers. So I don't see how anyone is going to be able to catch him at this point. Now, what I do see something interesting, I see DeSantis has completely fizzled. I think whether we believe it or not, I think the Trump storyline that he helped him win Florida is making sense now because here's a man that had the backing of the establishment was the man that was going to stop Donald Trump and he has gone down. Now, interestingly enough, you have uh, I'm going to call him VR because I cannot I can't pronounce that name, but who I'm really paying attention to right now is Tim Scott. Not in the sense that I think Tim Scott can overtake Trump. I don't think he can. I think Tim Scott's going to be a great potential VP pick. And I think that would be an interesting ticket uh, to see Trump and, and Tim Scott. Because, you know, normally the old shoe in politics, Craig, is that you wait for an October surprise or you wait for something to come out at the primary that's going to derail the front runner. But really, I really don't know what else they could bring against Trump. I mean, they've indicted him. They're going to get him probably on treason coming up in January 6th. I mean, there's not much more you can throw at the guy. Uh, and, and he still maintains the lead. So I, I do think he is going to get that nomination. I, I think that Chris Christie, is his only job is to go in there to attack Trump so the other candidates don't, to try to give a, a, an alternative to Trump a chance. But here's the thing. I don't know if Trump's even going to come at the debate. Now, normally I would say that's a bad idea that you want to get out in the debate. But I think Chris Christie has one good point, is that one of the reasons Trump polls so well is because everybody knows him. So what is going to help the other candidates? If people get to know them. If Donald Trump appears at the debate, guess what? You're going to have a whole bunch of people tuning in. If Donald Trump doesn't appear at the debate, guess what happens to the ratings? So I don't know if it's a smart move or not. We'll wait and see. Yeah, I, that could really go either way, couldn't it? I mean, uh, clearly yeah. Donald Trump doesn't need the name recognition. So, yeah. you know, if, if anything, it's the others that would benefit from his appearance on the stage. What about the argument that's been suggested that, well, mm-hmm. if he doesn't make an appearance, the rest are going to make a big deal, that he's too cowardly to show up, he's not willing to face his opponents, he's not willing to debate the issues, he's not willing to have open conversation in a public forum. Uh, does any of that 
that do any damage below the waterline? I mean, at this point, it just seems to me that the likelihood of there being much of a shift in support is probably slim to none, meaning if you're a Democrat, you're going to hold your nose and vote for Joe Biden. If you're yeah. a Republican uh, on the conservative side of things, yeah. you're going to likely vote for Donald Trump. If you're toward the middle or the wishy-washy side, maybe not. If you're an independent, who knows? It just who seems knows? to me at this juncture that the likelihood of much of a paradigm shift in terms of support is really not going to happen unless there's some other great big surprise waiting for us in the wings. Yeah, I just don't see it. I mean, you would have thought if we were having this conversation in the 2000 election and we talked about Al Gore being indicted, do you think we'd be even talking about a candidate Gore? He would have been done. I mean, even back in the day when it came out that Joe Biden plagiarized his speech, he had to drop out. But you see what's happening here, and that's what I'm saying. It seems like that the traditional rule book that we all followed has been rewritten. Now, Donald Trump did it to get in first in 2016 and he's continuing to rewrite the playbook and I don't think that people are going to buy the argument that Donald Trump is scared to fight I, 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 that's going to be a tough one to yeah I, I, I think you're right on that I, I think you're absolutely right on that point and, and the other point that you've really hit the nail on the head on and that is even as they quote about, well, the polls today say this or that. You know what? That was probably an accurate way of determining how things would go five, six, eight, ten years ago. Today, who knows? Joe Murray, constitutional lawyer, educator, best-selling author. Take Back Education, his latest book available online at Amazon.com. Joe, always a delight and an education to have you spend some time with us. There's Mr. Joe Murray. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.